0: At this moment, mass production alone is not enough. We all want customized products, and this customization is just hiring the manufacturing complexity. And you cannot just educate a worker with a variety of 400 different types of products that were just one unique type 20 years ago. So it's just much more easy to put these flows into robotic camera vision streams.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla 76. If you ask my four-year-old son, Jack, about robots, he'll go running for his Optimus Prime figure or one of the other transformers that are scattered across my house by the end of every day. When I hear the word robot, I by default think of big yellow robotic arms on an assembly line moving 100 miles an hour. My guest today, however, is an expert in a different part of the industrial robot, and that's the eyes. So let me take a moment to introduce him. Jonathan Berte is the mastermind and driving force behind RoboVision, the collaborative platform for those looking to lead the artificial intelligence or AI revolution. With a background as an applied physics engineer specialized in image processing, Jonathan built up a strong reputation building custom machine vision and robotic solutions in the first years of RoboVision's existence. The RoboVision AI software is what it is today in large part due to Jonathan building machine vision applications the hard way. Jonathan now passionately leads RoboVision to new heights every day. Jonathan, welcome to the show thank you joe well uh, glad to be here yeah it's great to have you this is such an interesting topic and you know i talk to a lot of people who touch robotics and automation from a variety of perspectives but you're kind of in this this corner related to vision and you got some deep expertise there and I'm, i'm very curious to learn from you and sort of expand my own knowledge as as you talk about you know your expertise okay so, you know, I guess like, like I said, Jonathan, to kick it off here, I, I know you're, you're in this world of vision, the vision component of AI. And I'm just curious if you could start by telling our audience a little bit about your personal journey that led you into that niche and then inspired you to found Robovision.
0: Well, that's a good question, Joe. It all started about 25 years ago when I started uh, experimenting with cameras and when I realized that this migration from analog cameras to digital cameras had also some a great potential. And I started basically dreaming about the potential when I was at the University of Zurich, Switzerland. Yeah, programming a bot that could look behind the back of a croupier in a casino. So just to follow the game. And that's where I realized that not only these gimmicky applications would be cool, but also image processing and everything related to getting value from image streams, cameras, also in production conditions, would at some point in time be very disruptive. And I believe that early on, I started slowly as a consultant, and the automotive market was really the the careful first steps. We all know that the industrial space is very conservative, very robustness-driven, typical component lifetimes of five to seven years. So it was not an easy game in the beginning, especially because of PLCs. You had a standard S7 Siemens, Allen Bradley, the usual suspects, Omron being there, and this Camera ecosystem was kind of a new kid on the block, but also a difficult new kid on the block because it was always the last component in in an automation project and the most tricky one because you didn't have the production data yet. So that's where I felt the hard way what industrial conditions are back then. I really had a tough time those first years, uh, 2004, 2005, in convincing people that they're could be potential in this camera application but uh, there was simply not so much support there was no were no large code bases out there. there there was the term ai was was really not used at the time and it was seen as an extra component to a plc so every budget was like too much and and can't you reduce the budget somehow with less features but in the end it was a very challenging environment up, up until one point when Things started to change when digital cameras became more and more commoditized. And, and this whole AI revolution basically starting off in at Stanford, California with Fei Fei Lee ImageNet started to take off and people started talking about deep learning. And that's when I deeply understood that the biggest disruption of all was not the camera itself looking at production conditions and and quality control uh, at the production line now it was the algorithm creation it was around 2010 2011 when i basically started all over again and said like my business model is not scalable i need to do something about the algorithm creation itself And that's when i went back to university personal friend of mine that was professor at the time a really cool machine learning lab that he headed and at the time some cool new guys were in this lab sandra dielemann and aaron van der ort that are now like high profile deep mind engineers and they explained to me that writing algorithmic software w- was coming to an end with the advent of deep learning and that's why around 2013 i i really started off with robovision 2.0 we had a i mean Designing a platform that made algorithm creation in the visual domain automatic. And that's, yeah, that's the basis of the, of the company. Basically, like you can create algorithms, whether it's quality control in the industry or COVID detection in healthcare, you can automate this process, which is the biggest disruption of all, Joe.
2: That's some really great background. It's it's such an interesting technological advancement. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about, you know, some of the specifics of, of how the vision component of AI is advancing right now and like what's possible now that may not have been possible even a few years ago.
0: Well, basically, if you look at the vision problem, you typically have this aspect of an object or something that you need to detect or some some Aspects or artifacts that you need to detect from the object and you have background and in the past, like 15 years to 10 to 15 years ago, you had to engineer all of this background subtraction, foreground extraction, feature detection, robustness, you had to do that all by yourself, meaning that it was really you, you needed to pick the features you needed to know all about the possibilities. So typically, a profile that had to write such an algorithm was already like a PhD degree. I mean, you needed like a PhD to be successful and then to create a robust image processing algorithm 15 years ago. Now, this changed when researchers started to reverse engineer the visual pathway in the brain. And they realized that, they started to realize some of the basic aspects of how a biological brain, a human brain, Is processing visual information and basically that was the advent of deep learning when actually the brain people started to reverse engineering the brain and and this feature detection that was like a manual task 15 years ago became automated and it's of course a big game-changer because Those are the most expensive profiles in the industry, is the algorithm creators. So if you can just automate the smartest people, all of a sudden you can just do many more use cases and make many more algorithms. And that's the era we live in. It's the era of the commoditization of difficult algorithms, especially in the visual domain.
2: What are some of the most important applications of AI in the manufacturing process from your perspective, Jonathan? And, and also, I was curious if you could maybe share a real-life example, whether it's from RoboVision or if you, or, you know, from, a, from a customer or just something tangible to put some of this in, in context for listeners.
0: We all wear clothes, like trousers, yeah, anything. So these are processes that are going extremely fast but if something goes wrong with the needles and you have this textile being woven at very high speeds if if one needle breaks or something and if it's not like noticed early enough you have like literally hundreds and hundreds of meters wasted textile that really needs to go I mean down the drain and this is where AI can be of uttermost ex- can can really function well. It's it's like to detect these anomalies in, in woven textile and as such stop the production process if a needle breaks, so not to waste any more material. That's a great example. So quality control, quality assurance would
2: be sort of one place. And anywhere else that you'd you'd um, you'd touch on.
0: Object segmentation, like everything related to detecting an object, the pose of an object, for instance, a glue process, which we did for the Audi factory in Brussels, like uh, uh, many parts of a car being glued with high tech glues. But then, of course, you need to check if, if the glue has been put well on the material. And this kind of, of processes can be automated with AI in, in a visual way but also picking, like object picking. If you have like a conveyor belt where a lot of product needs to be packaged or need to be quality controlled before packaging, then you, uh, you typically need to know the position and the, the exact pose so you can pick it up with the robot and put it in a box.
2: And that's great. You know, one common theme that seems to emerge from week to week in my conversations with manufacturing leaders who are coming from all different kinds of backgrounds in the industrial sector is this concept of the manufacturing labor shortage or this problem, I should say. And when you and I talked a few weeks back in preparation for this discussion, you said something along the following lines. I'm probably going to butcher your quote, but this is how I wrote it down. You said something like, if you want to double revenue, finding the labor is the biggest barrier. And I'm just kind of curious to hear you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how you see the role of AI alleviating that pain.
0: Well, uh, many of the, for instance, quality control issues are very tedious tasks and they need to be done literally 24 hours a day. So if at four in the night you are a worker and you need to look at textile for hours in a row with big lamps shining in your face, it's just simply not going to work. So many of these people get tired. They get, it's difficult to keep focused. So at some point you will just waste material because it's not what humans are supposed to do. Like looking at textile uh, hours in a row. So if you don't have these profiles or or if, if you cannot automate this process, then you will just have more material waste. So you will have revenue. Yeah, you have more costs. That and also these profiles, especially in very industrialized countries like Belgium and Holland, they're difficult to find. So you have this typical labor migration aspects, people coming from Eastern Europe and in in our region, that's, yeah, it's, it's just very difficult to keep production running with labor shortage, especially in pandemic times when you have all of these regulations keeping distance. So it's... It's it's a whole challenge to keep the factory running at the heat of the pandemic.
2: And are you finding, from you know, talking to your own customers and other people in the manufacturing space, that the problem around labor is that people just don't want to do those jobs? Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, what you have is I don't know if you have children. I have three. But one of the funniest movies they they like to watch is it's just like, I mean, it's it's decades old even more than 100 years old i suppose it's charlie chaplin and we all know this this image of uh, charlie coming back from work and still having this kind of movement in his arms because he has been screwing all day the same screw and 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 our children just laugh with it and they say like oh that's just so funny was this like really happening or is this just a movie no it was really happening and still there are a lot of jobs that are just very pinpointing one task I respect all operators and all backgrounds, but there are plenty of other jobs to do than, than just yeah, screwing one screw. That's just not a very humane thing to do 40 hours a week.
2: Yeah, that, that's, that's, uh, and I love your Charlie, Charlie Chaplin example there. It's, you know, cause it's, it is true and it's, and everything that I'm hearing is that, you know the the younger generation coming into manufacturing that they just don't want to do these jobs you know the the baby boomers are are exiting the workforce the ones who were who were comfortable doing these jobs maybe more than than the younger generations and so who's going to do them and you know the reality is there's a a big opportunity in in robotics to fill jobs that people frankly just don't want to do and as a result manufacturers are are kind of left you know Stumped with what, how do we fill the, fill the void? So it makes
0: sense. And that then also the, the aspect of more and more customization, like the industrial revolution has of course come up with mass production, but at this moment, mass production alone is not enough. We all want customized products and this customization is just hiring the manufacturing complexity and you cannot just educate a worker with a variety of 400 different types of products that were just one unique type 20 years ago. So it's just much more easy to put these flows into robotic camera vision streams.
2: That's great. One uh, takeaway I have here is I'm going to have to see if I can get my four-year-old and six-year-old watching some Charlie Chaplin instead of just Paw Patrol. So we'll work on that. (laughs) Jonathan, I've heard you talk a little bit about cloud versus edge technology as it relates to scaling your quality operations. And this is admittedly a knowledge gap for me. I don't know a whole lot about this and, and differentiating between cloud and edge technology. Um, they're kind of buzzwords to me. And um, I'm wondering if you can enlighten me and maybe some of our listeners who may be feeling the same thing about
0: sort of where this fits into the discussion that we're having here today. Well, it's a very good question. And some years ago, cloud was seemed contradictory to production Management systems and quality control is, uh, systems, because everybody was responding as along the same lines. Like, what if your inter- internet connection just falls, breaks down? And of course, that is that can still be a possibility. But with five G, with these low latency networks, high bandwidth, with not only a fiber connected to your company, but also yeah, other kind of second choice or or, or backup systems. Cloud is really becoming of primordial importance in quality control because of the fact that you can just easily scale up. You can just have yeah the, the scaling operations run by your cloud provider. In contradiction, if you have like an edge application, if you want to yeah have have a double production or a create a new production line, you 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 literally need to go and buy components you need to have this this edge devices installed and calibrated so the scalability is less with edge but in some use cases and we have industrial customers that work at air-gapped environment also because of, of production secrecy reasons and so on then you of course need to resort to edge compute and edge compute is basically an ai hardware device near to the production a site that is just this having a very small loop, image acquisition, inference of the AI model and operational results that will lead to a PLC, like pushing out the product if it's below quality. So that, that is basically the, the reasoning between cloud versus edge. So cloud is your compute localized at a cloud provider, Azure, Microsoft or Google cloud or Amazon web services whereas your local edge is device such as a, an NVIDIA Jetson, like a small GPU, which is very near to the production where it happens. Some cases even above the, pro, the, the conveyor belt, looking at the product and, and giving a direct output to the PLC to steer some operation. So both have use cases. Cloud is more scalable. It's also easier to update because basically it's just your cloud provider updating to new GPUs or something. So the game is very depending on the use case, Joe. That's great. I
2: I appreciate you kind of giving me some more insight into that topic. Well Jonathan you you and I f- sort of met via the Industry 4.0 group that is sort of taking root on Clubhouse right now. I keep talking about Clubhouse. I feel like in every every episode of this podcast because it's just becoming, you know, a really interesting place and I think the there's there's some pretty cool things happening in the manufacturing sector there. I was I thought I'd just kind of ask you, what, what are you seeing on that platform in terms of conversations that are happening around AI and robotics? And just kind of curious how
0: that's sort of influencing you and the potential you see there. I just love it because of the direct, correct, you can really make a connection with yeah, some other AI entrepreneur or somebody responsible for production and, and go into these conversations it's a really good tool to to learn about the world how other people and other teams are solving problems in other continents to sync and and give each other advice i think it's 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 the next big thing in social media but i'm biased because i'm kind of a bit bit addicted to clubhouse right now
2: i can understand how it would happen it's the i've participated in, as, as an observer, largely in that particular group, Industry 4.0, mostly just to sort of see what people are talking about and learn and enhance my understanding of some of these topics. And then I've been, you know, sort of running some of my own conversations more related to marketing and sales and in the manufacturing space. But it's it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of smart people, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm surprised that the manufacturing sector is there, but I am a little surprised at how how much it's taking route and so curious to see kind of where where things go on that front
0: yeah and also to form new relationship to talk to potential partners it's just so much more easy than a cold email just to have a conversation just yeah talk informal and afterwards about a very specific project
2: something for sure to actually hearing someone's voice rather than just reading words on on a screen right yes Great. Well, Jonathan, is there anything that I did not ask you today that you'd, you'd like to touch on while I've got you here?
0: Not really. I mean, we didn't really... A lot is changing also in, the, in North America with Boston Dynamics and, and all of these new robotic frameworks, Berkeley-based. So I do think that flexible manufacturing is really taking off if robots are much more easy to program. And with... If you combine deep learning with advanced robotics, I see yeah, a lot of difficult tasks like welding and like molding and, and CNC uh, manufacturing being replaced by smart robotics.
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting space to be watching right now. Recently on one of these episodes, I had Ryan Lillibridge from Mission Design and Automation on here. And he was, you know, he he brought up the fact that robots have been around now for something like 60 years, which is which kind of I, I almost had to ask him, like, did you say sixty or do you mean twenty or thirty? Because I you know, it you almost don't realize it, but some of the advancements that are happening right now are are really kind of, you know, th- there's just so many cutting edge things. I mean, you you've talked quite a bit here today about you know, w- where vision fits into that, but you know, from robots as a service to being able to, you know, the advancement it's in cobots and you know, robots working alongside people in, in safe environments that are becoming more, more safe, whereas they, you know, the robots were always traditionally caged. And you know, I think it's just it's really interesting how fast things are changing.
0: Absolutely. And I, yeah, I'm li- really looking forward to this future where robots are even becoming more smarter than they are today. Very passionate about technological advancements.
2: Great. Well, Jonathan, this is a really great conversation. I
0: appreciate you doing this today. You're welcome, Joe. It was uh, really fun to do.
2: Great. And can you tell our audience about where they can get in touch with you and also where they can learn more about
0: RoboVision? Yeah. The best way to get in touch with me is via LinkedIn, just Jonathan Bertie, and then you'll find my profile, or to follow the robovision.ai LinkedIn page or just a website, robovision.ai, see what use cases we have, how easy it is to create new algorithms with our platform and how we can solve your next challenge in manufacturing. So it was great talking on this platform. I'm really looking forward in bringing to you some lessons learned that we've learned in in, in manufacturing halls here with AI Robotics in Europe and, and open the American market for advanced AI technology. Great.
2: Well, Jonathan, once again, really appreciate you doing this today. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive.
1: You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player.